Hey there! Welcome to episode 62 of the Authors Read Podcast. I'm your host, Leah Ryan. Today's guest is Dr. David White, and he'll read from his book, Disrupting Corporate Culture, How Cognitive Science Alters Accepted Beliefs About Culture and Culture Change and Its Impact on Leaders and Change Agents. What is culture? What does culture mean to you? Is it how people feel? What they do? What they like and don't like? What they believe or value? Or is it what they say? Or does it have something to do with things like free food and foosball? Or is it some combination of all the above? In popular usage, the word culture is a mashup. As we can never be exactly sure what we mean, let me ask you a few questions. Is culture how you plan? Is culture how you define success? Is culture how you prioritize? Is it how you deal with risk? Is it how you delegate authority? Or is culture how you handle reporting? Or is culture about who is most respected in your organization? Or is culture the basis upon upon which you hire? Or how you handle conflict? Or how you deal with abstraction? If your answer to these questions that I've just asked you is, culture is all of those things, then you intuitively grasp what the cognitive science of culture is all about. From the perspective of cognitive science, culture or some aspect of it influenced every one of these answers above. This is because culture is knowledge, shared knowledge distributed within a social community. Much of it is implicit. We know it, but don't know we know it until it is brought into our awareness. This is quite different than saying culture's beliefs, values, attitudes, or norms. It would be quite reasonable to suggest that uh, these items are, in, in fact, expressions of your beliefs, values, attitudes, or norms. And while that would be true, it would miss the key point. You most likely didn't know the answer to some or all of these questions until triggered by the question. This distinction is key. The crucial difference between current mainstream thinking and this approach is that beliefs, values, attitudes, and norms and such are the products of conscious awareness and choice, whereas most of culture is actually pre-conscious, the product of reflex, at least until it is brought into our own awareness. This is not a semantic or technical distinction. It may be difficult to grasp or accept this because we tend to believe everything we do is based on conscious choice and free will. This does explain, however, why culture feels so pervasive and automatic. It speaks to how and where culture originates, and it points to how and where to intervene. Cultural knowledge, at its core, consists of basic, simplified mental models that anchor a reference system, a shared mental operating system running in the background of our daily lives. There are many names for these models, but cognitive anthropologists know them as cultural schemas. Schemas structure, meaning they pattern, delimit, and provide a kind of logic or rationale for everything understood as culture in any group or community. For the purposes of this book, I refer to schemas as shared dominant logics, or SDLs for short, 
because the term logic conveys the essence of what a schema is all about and is a more intuitive label for most managers and practitioners to grab onto. What underlies the answers to all of the questions that I asked you above are logics. When we put a shared logic into words, we call it an assumption. These logics or assumptions show up in many ways as implicit beliefs that structure more elaborate and complex logics, as implicit standards of what is taken as good or right or ideal, as ways of justifying a course of action, as rationalizations for why something happened or will happen, and as repeated patterns in processes or practices. What the cultural reference system is not is something that forces us to do anything. It is background knowledge, an operating system people can use to make sense of or function in the world around them. Culture can be a wall or a hand, but it's not a magical force. This is another of the many myths of culture that executives and practitioners often get confused by, thinking that culture is the cause of this or that. Cultural knowledge is preconscious, and we use it reflexively, yes, but the more we are aware of it, the more choice we have in how to use it. This is a key to unlocking the power of culture in your organization. What cultural reference systems are, where they come from, why they operate as they do, and how to leverage them is what this book is all about. Here's a quick summary of the chapters of Disrupting Corporate Culture. The opening chapter begins with a thought experiment. What would you do as the CEO of a medium-sized global company keen on changing your culture? The most popular methods you might employ would in all likelihood be based on what I call the five myths of culture. These myths are, one, culture starts at the top, two, culture is a physical thing, three, one company, one culture, four, culture is what we say we care about, and five, culture is employee well-being. From the perspective of cognitive science, each of these myths are based on assumptions or theories that are outmoded, incomplete, limited, or as is most often the case, not based on any theory at all, but instead reliant upon some kind of managerial, wishful thinking. And yet, as mentioned, these theories prevail. Why is that? The second chapter addresses that question. I begin by showing how we are in a corporate culture, quote-unquote, crisis. Despite millions of dollars, thousands of books, and decades of interest, most corporate culture change fails to produce any desired results. These myths explain why. I show where the myths originate, in siloed and narrow academic perspectives in business schools, and a culture industry too willing to supply simplistic solutions to highly complex challenges in the name of expediency. Oh, and yes, profit. Against this current state, Chapter 3 introduces the new science of culture. The cognitive branches of anthropology, cultural psychology, sociology, linguistics, and the emerging field of cultural neuroscience have developed major new paradigms for culture with big implications. It begins with the idea that how we think is deeply patterned by our ecological, social, and cultural environments of which we are a part from birth. Regular, sustained, and meaningful patterns of interaction with regularities in our environments form the basis for what, how, and why 
we collectively think as we do. What the science shows is that our minds extract me mental images or logics based on these interactions and that over time these become foundational for the formation of culture. The way in which this happens is obviously quite complex, but the key mechanisms, the key mechanism is adaptation. Humans are structure-seeking creatures. We are always trying to adapt and make sense of the ecologies around us. In this way, culture is an evolutionary adaptive response to the process of natural sense-making. And it's the basic and it's and it is basic for group functioning and survival. In organizations, this means culture is born out of a company's dominant occupational groups, from how it has gone about solving or adapting to hard problems or environmental challenges, especially existential ones of survival, and or from a clearly differentiated core purpose that goes well beyond ordinary commercial ambitions, or some combination of all, all the above. These sources provide a firm with its dominant logics, the cognitive foundations of the firm's cultural reference system. Reference systems are anchored by SDLs that structure practices as well as conscious beliefs and attitudes, many of which are actually adaptations or compensations for or reactions to the dominant logics. In other words, that tech firms move fast and break things, but manufacturers can't release quote-unquote beta versions of refrigerators is a much deeper cultural truth than these cliches might suggest. Put another way, task shapes culture. Chapter 4 shows how this works. I, in it, I showcase an archetypal Fortune 1000 industrial manufacturer's reference system. It shows how layers of culture extend from shared pre-conscious logics to practices and adaptations and depicts the extent to which a reference system pervades everyday business practices embedded deep within the firm and how those practices reinforce the reference system. Reference systems, therefore, are perfect for their current environment, but perfectly constraining for organizational transformation. Understanding how and why this is so pivotal to successful organizational change is key. In Chapter 5, we shift our focus to how managers and practitioners intervene using this new science. I show how exposing the reference system and its workings is essential to successful transformation. Once exposed, the next question is, what to do? To change culture requires changing dominant logics. But this is a tricky business. After all, dominant logics are dominant for a good reason. They have worked well as ways of adapting the organization to the ecological and existential threats in its environment. They also reside in people's brains, in their so-called unthought knowns, that is, what they don't know they know. This makes change doubly hard and is one of the reasons why so many culture change programs fail. To change culture, in essence, means intervening in the collective's pre-conscious. How does one do that? The key is practices. Changing dominant logics of the collective requires uh, instilling new habits and routines, i.e. practices, that induce new neural pathways. This is how the dominant logics got there to begin with, from meaningful adaptive practices growing out of the dominant profession, shared tasks, or core purpose of the enterprise. And while leaders don't create culture, 
Cultures form just as well without obvious leaders in any group based on the group's inherent need to adapt and make meaning. Leaders do play a role in molding it. This is because they control resources and set agendas that determine which practices matter most and why. This chapter ends by describing two frameworks for how leaders do that. One is a process framework for identifying and intervening in SDLs through practices. And the other is a leadership framework that speaks to the emotional and psychological orientations leaders must have to lead this kind of change for their organizations as well as for themselves. I'd like to thank David for sharing his book with us today. And thank you for listening to the Authors Read podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for the link to the book. If you'd like to support the Authors Read podcast, please like, subscribe, or share. Until next time.